It is a joy to sing together with you in praise of our God and Savior. Uh, As we listen to the word this day, uh, I'll say what I said last week. Um, The messenger is not the important part. The message, the word is the important part. Might we listen well to the word as Brother Smith comes and preaches it. Um, God bless as you do just that. <clears throat> good morning. I think I've said that three times already, so it should be a good morning. <laughs> it is a good morning. Today, you can go ahead and turn to Colossians. We're going to be looking at a lot of Colossians. We're not going to read the whole thing, although that would be a great exercise. Uh, I've actually considered doing that before, just say we're just going to read this book today and and that will be sufficient, and it would be. Um, But I'm going to today look at Colossians and show you something. I don't know if you've seen this before, but there's an... Colossians kind of follows an outline that I think you really see in Matthew 4.19, where we looked at this morning in Sunday school, Matthew 4.19, where Jesus was calling uh, Simon and his brother Andrew, and he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And I said in Sunday school, you know, there's three things in there. Follow me, that's being with Jesus, close proximity. I will make you, it's the transformation, the change that God carries out. And then there's the thing that he's making them, fishers of men. They'll be part of this mission that Jesus has. So we're going to look at this. I look at Colossians in light of those three things. What I want to start with is ask a question. What is a disciple? So I'm asking the question, what is a disciple? How would you define a disciple? It's not a rhetorical question. I'm actually looking for answers here. There's lots of different ways you could do it. So let's get started. A taught one. Somebody who is taught. Okay. What else? How, how's another one to add to that? A follower and learner of Jesus. Okay. A follower and learner of Jesus. So... All that's correct, somebody that's taught, a follower and learner of Jesus. In our context, particularly the follower and learner of Jesus, uh, disciple literally would be uh, somebody that just is a, that's taught, that's following a, a leader of some kind. Like in Japan, it's really interesting that we actually have a really good illustration of what it means to be a disciple. If you look at judo and the history of judo, you know, judo was started by a man named Jigoro Kano. And what he did is he looked at all the martial arts in Japan, and he said, you know, a lot of these things, you know, they have like, Ninjutsu, to be a ninja, they have all these things, it's a one-punch death blow. It's like, well, how do you know it works? I mean, you can't practice that, really, and you're going to go through practice partners like that, you know? So you can't practice that. (laughs) So how do you know that works? He said, well, you can't know unless you're actually in a real fight, and then if you find out it doesn't work, you might be in trouble, right? So you're like, this is is crazy. So he took all that out. He looked at all of the martial arts, said, we're going to take all that stuff that you can't practice against a fully resisting opponent out. So judo is only left with certain things, but you can practice those against somebody who is fighting back 100%. So, and that's important because you can actually practice that. So he can distilled this down to things you can actually fully 
embrace, practice, and know that you know, and you know that it works. And then he started a dojo, a place where he taught this. So he had people that came because they heard his philosophy and go, That's, that, sounds, that sounds good. I mean, that sounds reasonable. I can't practice these things. I can practice those. I would rather practice and know that it worked. That makes sense, right? So people came to his dojo to learn. And they began to learn under Kano. And he taught them, and he got up to where he had a certain number of people. At the time, I don't think they really had the black belts and things like you think of today. But he had, eventually, a group of mature people who had understood his system and were good at it. And around that time, the police department in Japan, over all of Japan, said, we're looking for something to teach the police. They need to know self-defense. They need to be able to control uh, criminals. So we need something to teach them. So there are so many martial arts in Japan We're going to have a tournament and say, that's how we're going to pick. Who does best in the tournament? And we're going to pick a dojo, and they're going to teach our police department. So they got this tournament together, and I forgot. There were a lot of different weight classes and multiple people in weight classes. In that tournament, how do you think judo did? Any guesses? They lost one match in the whole tournament. I mean, they dominated because... Their people practiced. They knew what... You had these people show up, I have this one punch death, but oh yeah, we can't use it in the tournament. The police don't want that. You don't want to kill every criminal. You just want to capture them. So the, the tournament was realistic as far as what the police need. They don't need to kill people. They need to beat them if they need to, if they're fighting. So Kano's dojo just completely wiped out all the other competition. And so the police go, okay, if you win. So what happened? Kano couldn't go to all of these police departments and teach them. So what he did is he sent out all of his disciples. All of these people who had spent the last several years, years of their life, and really in that time, many of them lived at the dojo or with Kano. They basically were with him all the time, learning how he lived, what was important, learning his system of life, of of martial arts, because it was more of a life and a lifestyle. It was everything. So they learned all of this. So they were disciples in the truest sense of the word. They were like the disciples who followed Jesus. They lived with him. They learned what he ate. They learned how he lived. They learned where he lived. They learned how he lived. They learned how he practiced. They learned his theories. Uh, They practiced it with him. They practiced it with each other. And then he said, okay, go and teach it. So they scattered over the country. And even today, most police departments still teach judo. They have police officers who will freely teach judo to the, the surrounding community. It's still ingrained in the police system. And that was because of one man's vision of what could be is Jigoro Kano. And now, I mean, judo is all over the world. <laughs> and you can't go to a country that doesn't have judo. Uh, it's still a very strong martial art. As far as you need practical self-defense, you almost would do better with judo than anything else because it's very practical. If you do judo on a weekly basis and anybody grabs you, they're in trouble. <laughs> They're going to hit the ground hard very quickly. (laughs) So this is very much the picture of what Jesus was doing with his disciples. He had a view of the world, a view of God that was compelling. So the disciples heard what Jesus had to say. That that sounds like something I want to know more about. So when he said, follow me, they go, he sounds like he's got something. So they wanted to be with him, and they, they walked along with him. They got to know him. They spent time with him. And that process changed them. In the same way that the disciples of Jigoro Kano, as they got to know him, they began to practice his theories, not just hear them, but practice them in their lives. They began to get on the mat and actually try to throw people, and 
They learned what worked and what didn't work. Their lives changed. Their ability to compete changed. People who spend time with Jesus and actually apply it, He changes them. They become different people. And you see that over and over again throughout history in the church as people have taken what Jesus said and then did what Jesus did, their lives are different. So a disciple is not just someone who has the the head knowledge. I know what Jesus said. There's someone who says, I know what he said, but it's not just a belief, it's active. It's a life devoted to living out what Jesus said. So that's a disciple. So now we're going to turn to Colossians. In Colossians, Paul is writing to people who are disciples, people who are followers, and he's challenging them. And chapter 1 you know, Colossians is one of my favorite books. We really should just read the whole thing, but we're not we don't have time to do that today. Um, chapter one, really, when you look at the middle of that chapter, it's talking about Jesus. It talks about who he is. He's the image of the invisible God, verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, for him, for by him all things were created, both in heavens and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church. He's beginning. This is Jesus. This is who we're, who we're talking about. Verse 19, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things on, in heaven. This is the message of a disciple. This is Jesus. He is the one we proclaim. That's what uh, it says in verse 28. It says, we proclaim him, Jesus, the one it spends from uh, like around 13 to like around 23 or so. It's just talking about Jesus. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's done. He is our message. And really what Paul says is, this is kind of an amazing message. Christ in you, in verse 27. The mystery among the Gentiles. Christ in you. The hope of glory. This is our message. And our goal is to be like Jesus. Verse 28 says, We proclaim Him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Complete in Christ. Mature in Christ. Like Jesus, our goal is to be like Him. In the same way that those disciples of Jigoro wanted to take His principles and apply them in their life and be like Him because He was an amazing, strong competitor. He had wisdom. He knew the theory, but He also knew the practice of it. They wanted to be like Him. We want to be like Jesus because He has what we want. He has a relationship with God that we need. And we can only get it through Him. And then He's changing us to be like Him. And He is our power for for living this out. It says in verse 29, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. You know, we don't do this with our own strength. It is with the strength that He provides. It's His power. He's our message. He is our goal. He is the energy by which we do it. And our motive is that everyone will be mature in Christ. As a disciple of Jesus, you have to accept the mission of Jesus, which is to be a disciple maker, which means you want to help other people live out this same goal, to be like Jesus. The same way those disciples of Jigoro Kano went to the police department and said, let me pass on to you everything that I've learned. 
That's what we want to do. You want to really first learn Jesus. Strive to become like Him. But then you want to look at people around you and help them grow in Christ-likeness. Help them understand who Jesus is. Help them live that life. And as, a, as an aside, we're not going to go over it today, but really the, the key principle, I think, that really would help if we all grasp this is that when, you, when you're looking at people around you, it doesn't matter who it is. It can be your neighbor who's unsaved. It can be your coworker who works at the next desk who is also unsaved. It could be a, uh, a friend who is a Christian but who's not very mature, who's maybe they've only been saved a, a few months or a few days or a few years. Uh, it could be somebody in your church who is very mature and they're maybe more mature than you. It doesn't matter who that is around you. You want to look at them with the same goal to see them become mature in Christ. There are no exceptions to that. If you look at another person, you should have one goal for them, to see them become like Jesus. And one way that I found this really helpful uh, to, to look at people around you is say, how can I help you take one step, one more step, to be like Jesus? If you think about that in the life of an unsaved person, it might be that their first step is acknowledging that God is. And often in Japan, that's where we are. We'll talk about that maybe more tonight. But, you know, in Japan, often uh, people have no concept of God. No idea whatsoever. So the first step to take a step toward Jesus is to acknowledge that God exists, He's real, and it matters. But some people, I mean, they're, maybe they grew up uh, in your neighborhood. They, they more or less, and they've heard the Bible. They've, they've been to church a time or two, maybe been to Sunday school or vacation Bible school, but they don't actually believe. But they, they would say, well, yeah, I probably believe that God exists. He's out there somewhere. They need to understand that God created them for a relationship with Him. That it's, it's not important just that he, he exists, but that He desires to have a relationship with them. He loves them. Their, their life has meaning and purpose that God gave it to them. What is that next step? Maybe that person is somebody that's more mature than you in your church. You still have the same goal to see them become like Jesus. How do you do that if they're more mature? They don't need you to teach them. Maybe they know could teach you. They might need your encouragement. They might need your prayers. You can still encourage them and pray for them as they make steps toward Jesus. You want to see everyone as someone who is not yet like Jesus, but is on that path. How can you encourage them? Encourage the next step. He is our message. He is our goal. And He is our power. So we want to be with Him. And this morning in Sunday school, we talked about journaling and the importance of our time in God's Word. That's really how we spend that time with God, how we get to know Him, how we understand what it means to be Christ-like. What was Christ like? <laughs> if you don't know, then you're not going to have that as a goal, right? If you, what was important to Jesus? What did He love? What did He hate? What did He do? How did He relate to people? We need to know that if we're going to be like Him. It's why we say you have to spend time in God's Word. Chapter 2 Colossians chapter 2, particularly look at verses 6 and 7. It says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so you've been saved, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted, and now being built up in Him, established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. Okay, this person has gotten started. They've, been, they've received Christ as Lord. They have accepted Him in faith. They have been moved from death into life. So now what do I do? You walk in Him. You walk with Him. You continue to grow. Been firmly rooted and now built up. 
in Him. You're rooted in Him. You've been saved, but you don't stop there. And too often we look at our spiritual life and say, well, I've accepted Christ. I'm a pretty decent person, so I'm good. No, the goal is to be like Jesus, not to be pretty good. Let's not stop, stop short of the goal. It says, we were instructed in the foundations of the faith, so how do we respond? Overflowing with gratitude. This one theme in Colossians that you'll see a lot is gratitude, of thankfulness. Really, if we understand what Jesus did for us, we're going to be thankful. We're going to have hearts of gratitude. That's, I think, a lot of the motivation for, uh, for evangelism, for pursuing Christ-likeness, flows out of this heart of gratitude. And I'm so thankful that, that Jesus loved me when I was unlovable, that he accepted me when no one would accept me, that he changed me when I was dead, when I was his enemy. He loved me. He died for me. He offered me hope. How do I respond? With gratitude, with thankfulness with offering him my life. Jesus is that foundation that we will never leave. And one reason we'll never leave is because we are so thankful for what he did. And because the cross is where we have the power to take steps each day. We can't do it in our own in our own strength. We're thankful that he goes with us. So we walk in him. We start with him. He's our message. We start with Him and we walk with Him. And we walk with Him in thankfulness. Chapter 3. Look at verses 12 to 17. It says, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now, when you look at that, one thing I want you to see is a life transformed. I I look at that and go like, it's impossible to live that way. I don't know about you, but I look at that and it's like, that's not me. (laughs) I'm not like that. I'm not kind. I'm not compassionate, humble, patient. Do you live like that every day? Is that the way you are all the time? If you're also, to say truthful, if you're honest, (laughs) you're at least going to have times where you struggle with some of these. You may do pretty good most of the time, but we're not going to be like this on our own strength. You don't become like this yourself. God changes us. He works in our heart. He draws us to Him. And this process of walking with Him, as we looked in the earlier passages, where we're changed by God, it's we're, we're uh, walking with Him. 
This process of obediently following with Him him is a process of Him changing our heart. As the Holy Spirit works in us, it changes us. Uh, When we are saved, He makes us holy. And we're beloved because He he chose us and He says that we are. But a lot of this, what flows out of our hearts, it's in the process of transformation. It's not instant overnight. You don't instantly become kind, humble, and patient the day you get saved. I didn't. (laughs) It's a process of transformation. And that process of transformation happens as we walk with God. As He's changing our heart. And even some of the things in this passage, verse 13 says, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. He's talking to Christians, you realize. Why would we need to bear with each other forgive each other? We're perfect, right? I mean, I've never had a Christian offend me. Many times. We're in a relationship and God has chosen to use this relationship to make us like Jesus. This relationship is important. It is part of the transformation. You were called to be a disciple, not in isolation, but in a group, in a community of people who are imperfect. And you are going to sin against them just as much as they're going to sin against you. And you need to learn confession and repentance in the same way that they need to learn forgiveness. And the opposite will also be true. This relationship is important. It's part of the process of changing us. It's why verse 14 says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. How can we be unified? Is it because we all think the same thing about everything? No. We definitely do not do that. It's because we are loved by the Savior. Because we love the Savior. And we love those the Savior loves. That's what unifies us. Not having the same opinion about everything that happens in the church or outside of the church. We're unified by Him. He is our message. He is our goal. And He is our power. Even in this, in loving each other. There is no better example of love than the love of Christ. He lived out on the cross. And when we do these things, when we seek these things, when we are following, walking with Jesus, and we are genuinely striving to love each other, we're going to do that imperfectly. But when we're striving, we have that as a goal, then we're going to realize what it says as it goes on in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. It's interesting how many times it keeps coming back. You have to be thankful. And I think this peace and the love that we have is very much attached to this idea of being thankful. I'm thankful for what God has done. I'm thankful for what Jesus has done in my life. And because I'm thankful for what He has done in my life, I can look at your life and be able to give grace. To be able to show mercy. Because I recognize that we're in the same boat. Neither one of us have earned anything from God or ever will. I can love you because I can see that you're a sinner just like me and Jesus died for you just like he died for me. 
We can be thankful together. And we're unified around one thing, and that's the cross. And all this is founded on, verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. We have to know what Jesus said. With our wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. We have to be teaching. We have to be sharing. We have to be encouraging with God's word. Not our opinions. Not our thoughts about how things should be. Not our wishes about how things might could be. But the truth of what God said is. You know, the truth is, as we stand, sit here today, the end of our lives are in sight. <laughs> the one common thing among all humans is that we die. The end is coming. We may get in our car this afternoon, it may be the end for me and my children. What's next? Well, God says, Jesus says, through Him, there's eternal life. Paul says, encourage each other with the words of hope. We have hope because of a resurrection. We have resurrection because Jesus was raised. Our hope is not in what's going to happen this week, next week. Our hope is in what happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus came out of that grave victorious and offered us something for which we will eternally be thankful. The end of verse 16 says, Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. This is the life we live. However long or short it is, it's a life of thankfulness and gratitude because of what Jesus has done for us and what He is doing in us. This is the heart of a disciple. It's humble, compassionate, kind, meek, patient, forgiving, and overall thankful. And from that base, we come to the end. The same place we began. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, it said, Him we preach. He is our message. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it, with an attitude of thanksgiving. There's that word again. Praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. The same place he started in chapter 1. We proclaim Jesus. This is the same place he ends in chapter 4. We proclaim Jesus. Pray for an open door for the message. And the message is Jesus. Verse 4, that I will make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech be always... Be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you may know how you should respond to each person. This is the mission to take the message, Jesus, to the masses. And in your context, the masses may be your next door neighbor. It may be your sister or your brother. It may be your coworker. It may be a friend. It may be someone who's in a club that you're involved in. Who are the people that God's bringing across your path? 
they were the masses. And you know what? The world has changed. It used to be that the masses came to the church. They don't come to church. You're going to find very few of the masses are going to come here. They're going to hear the gospel the first time in this room. Where they need to hear the gospel is when you're on your coffee break and you're standing there talking to them. Where they need to hear the the gospel is when you invite them to lunch and you share with them the hope that you have in Jesus. They're going to hear the gospel out there. And if you're not doing it, who is? This is the role of the church. Ephesians chapter 4 says, The pastor's role is to help equip you so that you can do the work of the ministry. And the work of the ministry is taking the message to the masses. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to be involved in his ministry, to be involved in his mission with prayer, with thanksgiving, with wisdom, with gracious speech, sharing the hope that we have. So as you look at Colossians, what I come away with, as I look at all this, there are a lot of keys, uh, important points that help us to be disciple makers. The first one is to build and maintain our foundation. That's God's word. That's prayer. That's relationship with God's people. Those are important. And over and over again, they're mentioned. So we, we build our foundation, but we also be thankful you can't come away from Colossians without saying, man, I need to be gracious. I need to be grateful. I need to be thankful. I have so much to be thankful for. So we need to build and maintain our foundation. We need to be thankful. And then we need to pray for an open door and be gracious when we have one. You don't have an open door every day. But they are there. What do you do when you have one? Well, if we're gracious, maybe we can keep it open. If we're gracious, we'll have opportunities to share the message, to share our relationship with Jesus to somebody, with someone else. You know, you're not going to be able to talk someone into the kingdom of heaven. There's not a perfect four points that's going to share the gospel and this person's going to get saved every time. That's not the goal. The goal is to share a relationship that we have through the cross with the Savior. And you do that as you open your life and you share your life. Be gracious when you have the opportunities to share how much God has done for you. In Sunday school, we mentioned that you know a lot of times we read the Bible and we say what's it sometimes feels hard to understand in places. This is not one of them. There's very little in Colossians that you're supposed to do something with. There's informational things you're going, wow, that's that's deep. There's some things when it talks about Jesus, you go, wow, man, he is he's big. That's deep. But when he tells us what to do, it's not complicated. It's hard to do. It's simple, but it's hard to practice. It's simple to understand, but it's hard to live out. I think that's one reason why 
the New Testament emphasizes this relationship of the church. We need encouragement from each other. You're going to have bad days. You're going to have bad experiences. And we need the church to lift each other up, to encourage each other, to pray for each other, to help each other stay motivated, to continue walking with Jesus. So my final encouragement, do what it takes to build your foundation. And this morning in Sunday school, we talked about journaling. You don't have to journal. You can do whatever you want to. You need to spend time in God's Word. You need to seek to understand it, and you need to look for, for ways to apply it to your life, to live it out. Consistently do that. You can't grow without it. Build and maintain that foundation of prayer, God's Word, and a relationship with God's people. Be thankful. There are so many things that are going to happen in your life. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be discouraged. You're going to be anxious and worried and fearful. But you know what? If you're thankful, a lot of those things are hard to do at the same time. You know, it's hard to worry and be thankful at the same time. You know, in the world today, it seems like everybody is anxious. Everybody is worried. How do you fight that? Well, being thankful is a really good start. And then... Pray for an open door. That's why we're here. It's what Jesus was doing. It's what Paul was doing. It's what Timothy was doing. It's what the church is designed for. Pray for an open door. And be gracious when you have one. Let's pray. God, this morning I just want to thank you for the encouragement that we have in Colossians to be... uh, followers of you to understand the power and authority that you have you are the message you supply us with the energy through the holy spirit to do the work you give us the method uh, through the working of the church through relationships through conversations got to pray that you would open doors for us that you would give us wisdom and courage to walk through those doors And God, that we would be gracious in all the relationships that we have inside and outside of the church. That we would be patient and kind and generous because we've been forgiven. God, I just pray this morning as we uh, prepare to go our way for the afternoon that we would go our way rejoicing. Thankful for what you've done in our life. Thankful for what you're doing in this church. Thankful for the fact that you are building your church in the world. And God, one day, people from every people, nation, tribe, and tongue will stand before you and lift their voices in praise, and we will be there. Thankful that you chose us. They say, ask in Jesus' name. Amen.